It's the Kim Munson Show, analyzing the most important story. Socialization of transportation, education, energy, housing, and water. What it means is, is that government controls it through rules and regulations. The latest in politics and world affairs. Under this guise of bipartisanship and nonpartisanship, it's actually tapped down the truth. Today's current opinions and ideas. On an equal field in the battle of ideas, mistruths or misconceptions, and it is getting us into a world of hurt. Is it freedom or is it force? Let's have a conversation. Indeed, and welcome to the Kim Munson Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You're each treasured, valued, you have purpose. Today's drive for excellence, take care of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your body, my friends. We were made for this moment. And thank you to the team I work with. That's producer Steve, Zach, Patty, Keith, Charlie, Jen, Echo, and all the people here at Crawford Broadcasting. I'm truly blessed to work with such great people. Uh, check out our website. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter there. And you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. And thank you to all of you who support us. We are an independent voice. We search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. And uh, we're doing something very special this um, these first three days of the, this week. Uh, Producer Steve is doing something very special with the Polar Express out at the Colorado Railroad Museum. And uh, so he is uh, going to be off for the week of December to make that happen. And Producer Luke, who's stepping in, actually had some vacations scheduled as well. And so we decided to do something very special, and that is um, rebroadcast some of these America's Veterans stories that we have recorded over the years. And I've chosen uh, stories, uh, actually. I have five uh, different World War II veterans, and then the last uh, the last one will be uh, a conversation with my cousins, who we had a cousin that was killed at Pearl Harbor, and we thought it was very appropriate to play that show on the anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So we worked really hard uh, to make this happen for you, and we hope that you will really enjoy this. This is, this is something a little different for what we're doing, but uh, we hope that it's something that you will really value. And uh, uh, in context, the America's Veterans Stories broadcast 3 to 4 p.m. on Sundays. And then Encore broadcasts are Sundays evenings 10 to 11 at night and Saturdays 10 to 11 at night. And this all began because of a trip that I took in 2016 with a group that accompanied uh, 4D-Day veterans back to Normandy, France for the 72nd anniversary of the D-Day landings. And it was at that point I realized each of these stories is unique. They need to be heard. They need to be recorded and broadcast and archived. And so we just thought that this would be something very special to do for you while we were uh, having all these different scheduling uh, things happen here at the studio. And so that is why we have chosen these uh, six different stories to broadcast for you. And so we hope that you thoroughly enjoy them. Don Whipple, welcome to America's Veteran Stories with Kim Munson. Paula Sarles, your good friend, is in studio with us here. And last week, we did Don Whipple, uh, Iwo Jima, Marine Veteran, Part 1. We're now doing Part 2. And certainly fascinating story about you when you were a missionary in Southeast Asia. But we had just really started about uh, uh, getting your experiences at the Battle of Iwo Jima. And uh, so let's take it from there. You're, you are in a book, More Than 36 Days, about ordinary men face extraordinary circumstances at Iwo Jima. It's by Karen Barella. And uh, the story, your story is absolutely riveting there. But let's, let's get to uh, Iwo Jima. Uh, you had done a tremendous amount of training in preparation for the landing for this battle. Correct, Don? Correct. And um, 
let's see. I, bef- I think before we get to that, be, uh, let's talk about uh, the last time that you saw your father, that you had gone home on leave uh, before the Battle of Iwo Jima. Tell us a little bit about that experience with your father. Yes, he uh, he wasn't very delighted with me going because we had a big farm and we farmed a thousand acres or more and, and a big ranch and cattle all over the place and milked about 24 cows by hand and <laughs> he didn't have any help and he was really wondering how he was going to ever make that farm work and I could have gotten a de- uh, deferment because of being in the farm and uh, and he of course wasn't too thrilled because he knew something would possibly happen to me so he, we went to the train and we were I sat down on a seat there so I could see him better, and I looked up at his face, and he was trying to talk to me, and he found he it very hard, and I had a hard talking to him because I felt so sorry for kind of leaving him in that lurch with no help. He couldn't hire anybody because everybody's away at war, and he was really concerned about how he's going to do that big farm and ranch. And so he said, well, son... I, uh, I'm going to say goodbye to you. We may never see each other again. He thought it would be me that I would get killed in a war or something, possibly. If tears began to come to his eyes, and he reached down and hugged me and gave me a kiss and said, I love you, son. And I said, I love you too, Dad. He was all humped over there and just tears streaming down his face. And he turned around and walked off of the train and Started out to the parking lot, all bent over and weeping and crying, and it was a tough time. And that's the last time I ever saw him because he was killed a few months later in a car wreck due to tire rationing, and tire blew out in his car and put him over in the other lane of traffic. And he, the uh, tread on the tire came loose partially, and it. That loose end wrapped around the front axle and the, the driving driving part of the car and brake labels and uh, brake cables and all that. And he was down there trying to get that unwrapped because he couldn't get the wheel off. It was it was pulled on there and stretched. That tread was stretched out like a rubber band. He was just like that wheel was welded on that hub. And he was down there trying to unwind that. That big old thick tread, piece of tread around the, the axle so he could get the wheel off and put the spare on and get out of there. And just then my mom, who was holding the flashlight, it was the night, and she said, Dad, there's a car coming right down here on the same lane that was beside us, and he's coming right toward us. She jumped over into the ditch and keeps from getting hit. My dad couldn't get out from underneath of there, and something on the underside of his car, I guess, but due to the, the crash when it crashed into my dad's car, piece of tan or something, hooked onto my dad's clothes, clothes and pulled him underneath of his car, and he was going down the road about 50 miles an hour. Oh, I'm so sorry. It, it just rolled him around there for several yards, and he was really drunk and didn't know what was happening. Couldn't The driver. Couldn't get out. 
Yeah, I couldn't get out of the car till he was so inebriated. My mom and my nine-year-old brother had to drag me out from underneath of his car, drag him out from underneath of the car. And so my mom sent me a telegram and a a letter that night. But due to the the slogan that was going on, you know, loose loose lips sink ships. Mm Mm-hmm. They were the uh, fleet post office in San Francisco held up the mail and and the telegram and all the rest because they didn't want any information that we were shipping out or anything and they didn't know what was in the letter that would like fall in the wrong hands and so I never heard about it and I got I was down at I was down at the Hilo, Hawaii in the big uh, on the big island. And we were loading ships they had a couple of days before Christmas. Because we were going to take off right after Christmas, between Christmas and New Year's. And we were lined up for evening chow. And the first start to march off, we were in formation. And the first sergeant came out and said, Papa, I need to see you in my tent. And everybody was really wondering in, the, in that group that Papa has been a good Marine. He never... I never smoked or drank at any time, so I never got drunk on a weekend and couldn't make it back for roll call or anything like that. So they were all wondering, what's Whipple getting called at for? And I was wondering the same thing, and so I walked in his tent and he pulled out that telegram from my mom that she sent a telegram back to me right away. And we landed up in his tent there, and he picked it up and read it to me and said, Dad was killed in an accident. Letter to follow. And uh, I broke down and cried a little bit there. And finally got myself together again. And we walked out of the tent. He said to all the guys, he said, listen up, guys. Whipple's father was killed and buried two and a half months ago, and he just now found out about it. And uh, they all broke rank and gathered around me to give me moral support. And one guy was a, a Christian boy that was a good friend, and he came up to me afterwards and said, we're having a um, meeting in the old intelligence building, and a, a, a Marine from Guadalcanal, he was wounded in Guadalcanal. That was the first battle in the war, just about, uh, in the Pacific. And... Uh, he said he's going to be there to speak and on the subject of how I was confronted by God. And I was listening and looking for the product. I believed in and heard in church, but I'd never heard the gospel. This church was kind of a liberal church, and I, I believed everything about Jesus coming on the world and being born in Bethlehem and all the rest. And that he died on a cross, and that we were all sinners, and I knew that, and I was really seeking God myself, and I couldn't seemingly find the answers to my questions of how I could uh, apply the things that Jesus did on the cross while he was here in this world to my life, to deal with my sins, and 
I just couldn't find the answer. So I was eager to get in there and look. Even in high school, I used to just long to know how I could really know Jesus in a personal way. And so the first words this boy said that was, and I said, I wouldn't come into your house without an invitation, and you wouldn't come into my house without an invitation. And Jesus is no bully. He's not going to come into your life unless you invite him in. And I just thought, that clears up my question. I just need to ask him to come in. So that was the time I became a Christian after that. The, the boy came there and told me about came over to my tent that next morning, about 6 o'clock in the morning, and said, what did you think of that last night, Don? And I said, boy, that's what I've been looking for all my young life was how I could know Christ and God in a personal way. And he said, well, did you settle it last night? He said, no, I wanted to talk to you so I didn't get sidetracked in the wrong way or what was there going on. And I told him about that, and he said, well, did you, let's settle it right now. So him and I now on the grass up in front of my tent that morning, and I prayed and asked Jesus to come into my heart and told him I was a sinner. The Bible says, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, we believe in our heart, Thou shalt be saved, and that's what I did. And I became a new person and as a child of God. And that's the greatest decision I ever made in my life. Don Whipple, uh, let's go to break. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. Uh, but let's go to break, and we'll continue on with this fabulous interview with World War II veteran Don Whipple. We'll be right back. Three Points Financial is a fiduciary financial planning company focused on helping individuals and families. Mary Alpers and Steve Cruz at Three Points Financial specialize in investment strategies, tax planning and preparation, and retirement planning with no product sales or commissions. Tax laws have changed and will continue to change. Inflation is real. Three Points Financial helps you maneuver through these changes to achieve your financial success. For clarity and a solid, relevant financial and investment plan while working with a company that puts your interests at the forefront, schedule a no-obligation initial consultation at threepointsfinancial.com. That's threepointsfinancial.com. Welcome back to America's Veteran Stories with Kim Munson. Be sure and uh, check out our website. That's americasveteranstories.com. And we have on the line with us World War II veteran Don Whipple. I'm so excited to have you on the line. Let's continue on. You were um, part of the second wave with the 5th Marine Division. And tell us, a little, tell us a little bit about Captain Austin. I mean, he was a Southerner from Tennessee. And my first day was... And- this man, he just was a gentleman in every way, a fine Christian man. And he was a Marine's Marine. He would stand up for us guys like you wouldn't believe. And everybody loved him, even though they weren't in our outfit. He, he just made an impact in that entire division just because he was such a, a neat, a neat guy. So I, uh, when I was, uh, Wounded, I he uh, he said, "I want to get you out of here." And I said, "Captain, I don't want to leave all you guys. I can hobble around on one leg for a day or two and make it." He said, "Yeah, but you'd be 
the other guys would be willing to help you and put them at risk, and you'd put yourself at risk, and I want you out of here. And he was quite definite about it. And so we were shipped out uh, there to the beach, uh, to the aid station there from where I got hit. And they triaged me and just sent me down to the beach. And we waited there, and I, was, I had a head wound as well in my brain injury, and well, let's let's and, stop. Uh, let's explain that just a little bit. Uh, and one of the first things, it, uh, the day that you went on the beaches of Iwo Jima, it was Captain Austin's birthday, correct? Right. And he was. I said, hey, he said, isn't this a terrible way to spend your birthday? He's digging. Them. We were they both digging foxholes, just in training on the island of Maui. We had just landed on there. We were digging foxholes, and he said to me, "Isn't this a?" A terrible way to have to spend your birthday, and I said, "It sure is, Captain. How uh, how old are you here on your birthday?" And he said, "24." And we thought he was the old man because all of us were in our in our teens, and and it was so really he was a real champion. And it was really teenagers that won World War II that stood up against tyranny. And I, I think it's important that people understand it. How old were you when you went on the beaches of uh, Iwo Jima? Well, I had uh, turned 17 in August, and uh, so I was just about halfway through my 17th birthday. Oh, my gosh. My gosh. Okay, now... And most of our guys were, were about that age. And we had a general speak to us, one, our commanding general. His name was uh, uh, Alan, Alan Mad Smith. Was, he was a... Uh, uh, fighting bulldog and he uh, they called him Helen Mad Smith and he uh, oh he said you know Ted said to us one day did you guys realize that World War II was practically won by teenagers because there was most of our guys were teenagers or else they were we had some guys from Guadalcanal and then the other islands along the Pacific the uh, kind of the forerunners to the uh, to the Navy SEALs, the Marines had what they called the Marine Raiders, and they were a fearless bunch. And so they had broken the Marine Raiders up. There was some jealousy amongst the various Marine generals, and the Raiders were getting a lot of attention. And so they they broke them up and started putting them out into divisions. And so we had a bunch of those guys, and also the Marine paratroopers. A bunch of those came to it with us. So we had a bunch of these old veterans there, and the rest of us practically all were teenagers. And uh, so it, it was a young man's war, all right, too, just like today. I, I've, I've worked with the, the guys coming home from the uh, Middle East. And these, when they turned the Marines and the Army and all that into volunteer Groups. A lot of these boys had volunteered in the at that time, or in the, even down in '16, because they right out of high school, like I was, and they they enlisted in the Marine Corps and with their parents' permission, and they would be over there. And at that time, at the time of the presidency of Obama, they uh, had orders not to. Not to shoot and fire on the enemy till the enemy fired on them first, and these 
these young men when they came home they were they were so rattled with PTSD and everything else because they would they would have the enemy in their guns and then had telescope in their guns and they could see those guys were facing right over there at them and had their guns pointed right at them and they couldn't fire because they had to get permission before they could pull the trigger and about that time one of these guys would fire over there and hit their buddy or somebody right next to them and they'd see that other teenage boy fall over being shot and they could have they could have pulled the trigger if they hadn't had that crazy ruling. It's the dumbest thing I ever heard of. But so it would just shake these guys in high heaven at 17 years old to see them a good buddy shot. It's the hardest thing anyway is see one of your own guys go down. And uh, so when they come home, they're just uh, shattered, and the suicide rate was fantastic. And not in a good way. It just. Uh... Very high. That's right. And, Don, I know, that, and we talked about it on the last broadcast, uh, what's been on your heart to really help these uh, soldiers or Marines when they come come home. But I, I want to continue on with Iwo Jima. Uh, Iwo Jima was basically an island made of volcanic ash. And uh, you were working with uh, communications with the telephone equipment. And explain to our listeners, it's not like you had walkie-talkies, was it? You actually had to have wires from the telephone equipment. That's right. We, right? These big coils of wires were heavy, too. And we, and we went down over the side of the ship. We had a lot of equipment and stuff in our packs. We had about 100 pounds as we went down oh, on wow. that cargo net to land in that little boat. And when I landed on Evo, I was calling what we called a, uh, what it was, it was a machine gun cart. And they're taking the machine gun off and put a box on there. And we had that box filled with wire and phones and radios and batteries, all of which were very heavy. And uh, we were pulling that thing, and that sand was just like quicksand, and you sink her into your knee. It was just that very fine volcanic dust. And uh, this cart would sink clear down to where we were just pulling a bunch of sand because the wheels had to go clear down to the axles. And so I was on a rope that was tied onto the edge in the corner of the cart, and I had a, a a little strip of wood in the handle and in the end of it out there, and I was about 15 foot long. And that's what I was up at pulling that up. So I was a little bit ahead of the other guys. And there's another guy on the other side, just like me. And then two guys on the tongue and then two guys behind pushing. And we were going to go over these terraces. The Japanese had pushed a lot of this sand up into a, a terrace. And they would stop trucks and tanks and all that from landing on the beach. And, and it was a real detriment to the guys trying to go. You take one step and slide down two and take another and slide down two more. It was a beast of a thing to get up in there. So when I got to the top of that terrace, I just kind of stepped up there as far as I could and not exposing myself too much, and I would want to see what was on the other side. Is the machine gun this there or what was there? And just as I was stepped up to that, that mortar came in, and I saw the thing come in. And uh, the mortar is a, a great big shell, about six inches thick and 10 inches long or 18 inches long, in some cases, bigger. 
and it's dropped into a tube. You've probably seen them in movies. Mm-hmm. They drop it into a tube when they send it off, and it kind of goes kind of a little swish, and it doesn't. Uh, but it's a terrible instrument because when it lands, it's got shrapnel and glass and everything else inside, and it all explodes. And that shrapnel just spits up in the little pieces, and it just cuts you up like a knife because that those little pieces when they explode. It's cast iron, and and it just and makes all that iron breaking them a little piece, and it's swirling around in the air at about a 1,200 uh, times a, uh, a minute, and it's sharp as a or any razor because it's stretched that metal out to a just sharp, jagged edge, and so in fact, uh, I. Uh, I had a the big piece of it that went into my leg. It went clear into the bone, and they didn't bother about taking it out there. And and so about 1953, I it had worked its way out, and it stood out in the bone of my bottom of my, my thigh, and just above my knee. And it, it worked its way out till I was pushing up against my skin, and I would. Every time I'd bend my leg and touch that, why, boy, it hurt like crazy. So I went down to the VA and they just froze it. And since it was right under my skin, I took it out. But uh, about six months ago, I had a some itching down there on my leg, and I was about an inch away from where that big piece went in. And I was kind of just rubbing it with my finger, and all of a sudden, my something caught in the joint in my forefinger, and I stopped rubbing and. Raised that up and pulled out another piece of shrapnel about the size oh of a grocery store straw. Oh my gosh! Been, it, been in there for seventy-five years. Oh my gosh! Hey, Don Whipple, let's go to break. That is absolutely amazing. Uh, so this is Kim Munson with America's Veteran Stories. On the line is World War II Iwo Jima veteran Don Whipple. We'll be right back. The Metro home ownership real estate market is very tight right now. That's why Kim Munson recommends you have seasoned REMAX realtor Karen Levine on your side of the table. Karen Levine will help you navigate through the many details of your home buying experience so that you can successfully pursue your American dream. Because Karen Levine cares about property rights for each individual, she volunteers hundreds of hours to represent home ownership opportunities at the local, county, state, and national level. If you are considering buying or selling your home, call Karen Levine today at 303-877-7516. Again, that's 303-877-7516. You'd like to get in touch with one of the sponsors of The Kim Monson Show, but you can't remember their phone contact or website information. Find a full list of advertising partners on Kim's website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. All of Kim's sponsors are an inclusive partnership with Kim and are not affiliated with or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the Kim Munson Show and grow your business, contact Kim at her website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. God bless America. We are hearing the most amazing story from Don Whipple, 
World War II veteran Iwo Jima, the Battle of Iwo Jima. Before we get back to Don, though, in studio with me is Vietnam-era veteran, Marine veteran, and that is Paula Sarles. And Paula, as we are hearing these stories and keeping them alive, another thing that people can do is help you remodel this Marine Memorial out here in Golden. And as you hear these stories, either you can buy a brick for uh, someone that served uh, in your family or somebody that you know, or you can just actually go donate that. But uh, I know that you're raising a lot of money so that we can get this back into tip-top shape. Right. And every little penny helps. So donate, donate, donate. <laughs> okay. And you can do that at USMCMemorialFoundation.org. Okay, one more time. USMCMemorialFoundation.org. One of the reasons that you are doing this is because of the man that is on the line. Yes. He touched my heart so much when I met him the first time, and people like him. They do like him. Don Whipple, uh, before we went to break, you were talking about that you had been hit by a mortar, and then actually, what, 75 years after you had that injury, a piece of shrapnel, and that was just six months ago, that you uh, you pulled that out, which is just remarkable to me, but You've been, let's go back to the battle. You've been injured, and uh, you were hitting, or talking about this just a little bit uh, with uh, your conversation with Captain Austin, and he said, you need to get out of here because you're going to slow down the other guys if you stay here. So you are being evacuated from Iwo Jima. Take it from there, Don. Yeah, we uh, we went down to the aid station, and they just triaged us on down to the beach to catch a uh, a boat out to a temporary hospital ship. It was a just a troop a troop ship that uh, they turned into a temporary hospital ship. And so I, I sat down there, laid down there, that day on the stretcher all day long because they couldn't get that little landing boat in there to load us so we could be loaded up on and they out to the ship. And then in the meanwhile, about that evening, the sun was just setting. I remember looking over in the ocean as the sun was going down over the ocean. I just thought, that's a beautiful thing. We had an air raid, and, and the plane's going up, and uh, a, a Japanese air base on an uh, air, uh, air field up north of Iwo Jima, about 100 miles. And these planes come in, and the destroyers put up a smoke screen to the ships. They couldn't see these ships. And uh, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And so we started out about that time this little boat came in to pick us up. And we, they carried a, it was a flat-bottom boat for big equipment like caterpillars and and uh, big equipment like that. So they had a big flat-bottom one, and they just carried us in and set us on the bottom of that, that boat. The guy next to me had... Well, it was artificial skin, but he, it was a black, very fine weave. It looked like of some kind of material, I don't know what. But you could kind of see through it, and you could see his heart and lungs and everything else through there. And he was out trying to talk, and every time he'd say something, he'd just spray all out over the whole area there. And I just thought, I don't know how that guy's ever going to live. I could see his lungs and everything else, ribs and all. And I was right beside him. We were up against the bulkhead. And 
so I just had a word of prayer with him and asking God to help him at this time. So anyway, we went on out on this ship and they took us to the first transport out there and he pulled up the side and the smoke was still pretty thick and he could hardly see anything. And all of a sudden I saw that sharp point of the bow of the ship just shoot up. It looked like it was clear into the sky from where I was sitting. And I thought, man, these guys are great at maneuvering this boat. And we maneuvered us way around there and alongside and there was a guy with a megaphone up on the ship. He called down and says, we can't take you. You'll have to move on. And the Lieutenant J.G. that was head of our little boat, he said, okay. And they he said, I really need to have these guys on because and they said, I'm sorry, we're full. So we moved on. We went to six different ships that way. And the sixth ship, they pulled up and the guy with the megaphone there on that ship said, we're full. Tell you, you have to move on. And this little J.G. says, I'm not moving. I've got guys that need help badly. And I'm not moving. And the captain came on and said, this is the captain speaking. And the real senior voice said, uh, you have to move on. We're loaded. Can't take you. We're not going to take you, so move on. And the little J.G. says, I'm not moving, Captain. And I remember saying, yay, and I put my hand up in the air, and I was so thrilled that he was handed the injunction to assess that captain back a little bit, because he outranked him all over the place. The guy said, no, move on, you know, we can't take him. He said, I'm not moving, Captain. These guys need help, and I'm not moving. So finally they gave in and took it on. They lowered a big cable down from the ship from a winch, from a winch. And on the, uh, on this cable was a was a big hook. And in this hook was two four smaller cables hooked in there on one end. On the other end of these smaller cables was a loop. And they just take this loop and put it around the handles of our stretcher. And they put a belt on us, and we went swinging up in the air on this stretcher. And that way, and that's how we they took us aboard. And again, they just triaged me and sent me up to the place where I was going to sack out. It supposed to just be a temporary place there. So anyway, I got over there where I was, and the guy next to me, I the, the Navy ways uh, that the Navy guys uh, sleep on a kind of a frame made out of pipe and in canvas over top of that. They can just fold those up, and they have them folded up, and there are about 18, 18 of those bunks. They just fold up, and they go on a, a machine that kind of goes up and down. And the guy on the, had two, the two of them going way up into this, in this place where we were going to sleep. And then the guy next to me there, the on the other side was a young boy. He looked like a junior high school student, but he was really kind of a very dark complexion. And from, uh, I thought he had just doped up and they out of color. But anyway, I soon 
realized that he was dead, and that's what he made him just dark complexion of his skin and whatnot. So he just looked like a junior high school teacher, and I just cracked me up. Next mm. morning, the, the loudspeaker came on, and the captain said, it's the captain speaking. There's no smoking. We're having a bear at sea this morning. I wanted to go down and honor these guys at this bear at sea, so I jumped out and pushed the button and lowered that thing down, and this boy was gone. He wasn't there anymore. So he was one that's being buried at sea, I guess. And that really cracked me up. I just thought, this is the most miserable place to die and I can ever think of. 10,000 miles from my home and no family, no loved ones around. And here he is, a teenager that never got a chance to live. And he's being dumped in here in the sea. And we were right over the Marianas Trench, which is the deepest place on Earth. It's nine miles deep. And that's where they were burying these guys in the sea. And they they had them in a wire cage kind of a there, kind of shaped like one of these old-fashioned cowboy movie caskets that they would have where they're wide up at the shoulders and, and kind of go down there to their feet. And they had them in, this, uh, in a body bag in there. And they would take a big shelf from one of the guns on the ship and put it in there so it wouldn't, their body wouldn't float back up again. And they had them all lined up on a little paddle. They'd have my, each one of them had a paddle, and that's where these wire casket things were. And they were in a body bag and then draped with an American flag. And the captain would say a word, and then they'd have a gun salute, and then they'd play taps, and then they'd tip these little paddles that this casket was sitting on, tip that down, and it caskets would go sliding off into the sea. And I just thought, man, I'm like, this is so terrible. I stood there and cried like a baby. Helps for these kids. And after this was all over, I heard a voice right behind me. I recognized the voice. and My job was to be a forward observer. I was to be, what the job says, that forward. And I would be observing for the artillery. Because they were there back in the back of ways and they can't see where they're shooting, they just have to take a full word of a forward observer, and that's how they'd find out where the target was. And it was a tremendous responsibility thing mm-hmm. for a 17 year old boy, 18 <laughs> year old boy. It was just a, a very, you got the wrong figures to get them down there. You could wind up having friendly fire on your own troops. And so it's a big responsibility, for sure. That was, and so he's this guy. This boy was on my team, on a team like I was on, and uh, I heard his voice, and I knew who he was. And I, I said, Tom, he was standing back behind me, and I said, Thomas, is that you? I couldn't see because there's a bunch of guys out there observing this area of sea and honoring these guys. He said, Yeah. He recognized my voice. He said, well, yeah, Whip, we got to get off of this ship somewhere or other and get back on the island. Let's stop right there, Don Whipple, because this is a fascinating story that you and your buddy decide that you're going to get back to the battle. And uh, so let's uh, go to break. And when we come back, we'll continue the story with the World War II 
Marine veteran Don Whipple. Paulo Sarles uh, is in studio with me. And before we go to break, uh, one of the reasons you get these great shows is because of my great partner, Hooters Restaurants, uh, located in the front range here. They have five locations. That is Lone Tree, uh, Aurora, Westminster, Colorado Springs, and Loveland. And they have all kinds of specials. Wednesdays are Wings Day. You buy 20 wings, you get 10 for free. They have lunch specials. Uh, kids eat free, happy hours. And it's just a, a great time to get together with friends. So go to HootersColorado.com for more information. That's HootersColorado.com. And we'll be right back. Every family needs a healthcare team that has your child's best interest as the priority, and Roots Medical is proud to offer exactly that. At Roots Medical, we strive to empower and educate both parent and child about the importance of gut health, how to implement healthy changes in the home, and of course, all of the benefits that come with a fully optimized immune system. Same day and sickness appointments are available and easy to schedule. For more information, visit rootsmedical.net. That's R-O-O-T-S medical.net. Roots Medical, getting to the root of your healthcare concerns. Inflation is rocking our boats, especially for individuals on fixed incomes. If you are 62 years or older, mortgage specialist with Polygon Financial Group, Lauren Levy, can help you navigate this inflation squeeze with a reverse mortgage. Additionally, if you are considering buying a new home, refinancing your existing home, or consolidating high interest debt, it's not too late to lock in an interest rate before interest rates increase again. Don't wait. Kim Munson recommends you call Lauren Levy today at 303-880-8881 for a no-cost consultation. That's Lauren Levy at 303-880-8881. The ability to protect and defend yourself is your right. Having the knowledge and skills to protect yourself the correct and safe way is essential. At Franktown Firearms, they will equip you with both the tools and the skills. The team at Franktown wants you to learn how to build your confidence and improve your skills with the help of their trained experts. They will take the time to make sure you choose the right gun for you and teach you the necessary skills to carry it safely and securely. This holiday season, consider giving your loved one a firearm training course at Franktown Firearms. They offer one-on-one training or group classes, depending on your comfort level and skill. You will find they are fully stocked with guns and ammunition at or below MSRP. You can be assured that you are providing a gift that will truly keep on giving and let your loved ones exercise their freedoms and rights safely and confidently. Visit klzradio.com slash franktown today to give the gift of freedom. That's klzradio.com slash franktown. Franktown Firearms, where friends are made. From the mountains to the prairies to the... Welcome back to America's Veteran Stories with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website. That's americasveteranstories.com. Again, americasveteranstories.com. We are talking with World War II veteran... Don Whipple. He was at the Battle of Iwo Jima, which was a pivotal battle uh, during World War II. In studio with me is Paula Sarles. Paula, you're very good friends with Don. Yes, I am. And one of the reasons that you are working diligently to raise money for the remodel of the Marine Memorial out here in Golden is for guys just like Don and many of your other colleagues in the Marine Corps. Yes, ma'am. And we... Uh, I've just been so privileged to meet so many of them. Um, At one time in Cooper's Troopers, we had 11 Iwo Jima guys, and we focus on them. And yet in that group of men, there are so many from Korea and Vietnam, and just every person's stories are so important. 
and that's um, something that we want to honor them at the memorial with the brick with their name and stuff in perpetuity and then we want to have stories uh, about the battles and stuff along the walkways that'll tell the history too and how can people help you they can help us by donating at usmcmemorialfoundation.org usmcmemorialfoundation.org and you can buy a brick or donate there okay well it's great to have you in studio thanks Don Whipple, uh, before we went to break, you said that you had just witnessed a burial at sea and you heard this voice uh, say, uh, hey, Whipple, is that you? And we've got to get off this boat. What happened from there, Don Whipple? Well, we uh, we got together and this guy said to me, he said, man, we got to get back out there. And I said, that's right. That's So we couldn't find, there wasn't any boats on that ship at all. They had all taken troops that uh, had been on the ship into the island to land and as we were talking he, he was hitting the back and the wall cramped over and I was hobbling around on one leg and we couldn't do well but we hobbled down to the we saw this boat being uh, winched up onto the deck and he was up in the bow of the ship and the coxswain or the driver of that, that boat was out wiping the coils and plugs off the water that sprayed up on there and so we hobbled down there and I said to him, you going ashore? And he said, I am tomorrow morning. I said, could we ride with you? And he said, you better get different clothes than that on. We just had on Navy pajamas by that time. <laughs> you think? And so going down, going down while we, to the bow of the ship, we passed by a big, big pile of gear. And they call it the dead man pile. The dead man pile. It was the stuff they're taking off dead men. The tungaries, rifles, helmets, gas masks, everything they had and needed. And we didn't have anything because... All of our stuff was left on the battlefield, and so we came back and we outfitted ourselves from the dead man's pile and got a uniform. And I had another man's name on my lapel. After that, after evil, until the end of the war, that I wore his his dungaree top and got a rifle and gas mask and all of the stuff we needed to, to go back in. So I. Uh, Captain Austin was was such a neat guy. I hated to do anything. It looked like I was going to disobey, but I uh, just was hoping I didn't meet up with him when I got back ashore. So we, the next morning, we got on that boat and went right back and landed at the foot of Mount Suribachi, right where I landed the first time on Green Beach. Each, they had each beach color-coded as cars and me. I ended on Green Beach, and I just knew approximately where our communication center would be. And so we got up there and got off the boat, and we made it up there, crippling along. And I remember one kid as an all observer, too, and he said, What if I thought you were dead? He had passed by while I was knocked out, and I looked like a dead one. And uh, I said, No, not yet. And he said, uh, we talked a moment. And so I was, at that time, Captain Austin came around a bunch of ammunition boxes ahead <laughs> up there. He saw us there, and he took kind of a, like a strange look at us. And, what are you doing here? I thought. And uh, I just thought, man, I hate to think I just did it. Have him think I deliberately disobeyed him. 
But about that time, he held out his hands and said, Welcome, Whip. And boy, that made me feel good. <laughs> so I, I made my way over to the the uh, communication center, and they had a switch. They had a switch, little switchboard that was in there, and it had sandbags up around it, and covered over with a tarp so we could have a little light in there for the Tennessee to do what we had to see. So I ran that switchboard for 55 hours straight. I remember. Oh my and gosh! I, while he was wounded. I just, after that, about 55 hours, my leg was able, I would get to stretch it out and kind of put weight on it and get along pretty good. And so I called the, what they call the fire direction center, and they're the ones that, they, they these guys have slide rules and all, and yeah, just to help them figure out where to have the gun set their, their barrels pointed to, to tell them where to shoot. And so I called over to them and told them I was ready to take my post at the Boy Observer Post. And they said, all right, I feel there's a group of lawn, there's a platoon of men going up the hill just right now. And why don't you fall in behind them and just go on up to put them out to Maybe find a place there to kind of dig a foxhole or a hole to hide in a cave or something. And so I hobbled out there and joined these guys. Followed up behind with them, and it was interesting. I never did really find out for sure, but I think it might have been some of the guys that helped raise the flag. Because I, I don't know for sure. I know that I'm going to ask him one of these days, and then try to explain to him what we did. So I found a little place kind of inside of the mountain, kind of a niche in the rock. And I could see pretty good the whole battlefield and up in the top of Mount Suribachi. And uh, I uh, cuddled in there and gave him a buzz on my phone and told him I was in place and they gave me the description of where they, uh, where they were at. And uh, they called me back and told me they were in a in a cave down there, just not far from where I was hiding out in. And so I had a map, and it was the same kind of the map that the people in the fire direction center had. It was a battle map. So they had all the pillboxes and all those marked, and there's an old pillbox that the bombers had knocked out of. And uh, the fire direction center, just to get started, they have, they have this figure out as near as they can figure from their map and with their slide wheels and all the rest of the tools they have. They'd fire a shot over there and uh, so they were going to tell me they were going to fire a test shot and there was this whole uh, pillbox that had been bombed out it was on their maps and so they fired and they got pretty near that little pillbox and so I told them how much they had missed it and that they could move it to the sites that seven millimeters to the left or something, whatever weather, I don't know where it was. And uh, the range was okay. In other words, the distance was okay. So they fire another one, and about the third shot, they hit that old pillbox again, and that became our reference point for all the rest of the places we wish to shoot. And so 
when I found out where these guys were at, why they they started up the hill to raise that second flag, and uh, there was a machine gun nest in one of the caves, and they couldn't. They got so far in this machine gun nest, couldn't let them any further. So I was trying to hit this machine gun nest, and that's what they were describing to me where it was at. So I pretty well knew which cave they were talking about then, and so I called back to the fire direction center and told them where to set their sights, and said. So many millimeters down and two millimeters to the right or left, whatever it was, and two millimeters. And so they fired a shot, and I told them how to, let's say, missed it. Not the third shot again. You can pretty well, it's amazing how much you can do that way. Now they use GPS to do all that, but. And so the next, the third shot, they hit her right on and scattered those guys all over the hillside. And they had a bunch going up the hill to raise the flag. They called me and said, hey, man, you scattered them all over. We're going up. So I talked to the uh, their telephone guy all the way up the hill. We had small little uh, spools, of, spools of wire on our back that they rolled off of a spool. It was real fine wire, and they just left that fell out behind them as they went up the hill. So I talked to him all the way up the hill, asking him what he was doing and all that stuff, and uh, if he was running in any any and He said, well, we're getting it up to the top. There's some of the guys up here already, and they, they're looking around to try to find a pipe or something to put the flag on. He said, I think they found one. They pulled something out of the little cistern up here that the Japanese had built it get drinking water for their troops because you couldn't drink the water on Iwo Jima it's uh, so much uh, sulfur because it's just sulfur water and that stuff there's four smells that just wrecked that island there was the smell of gunpowder and in fact the skies were just kind of orange from gunpowder smoke and uh, it's gunpowder and uh, the smell of sulfur, which smells like rotten eggs and terrible smell. And the smell of, uh, of the decaying bodies. And that was the most stupid mm. thing you could ever dream of. Well, Don, we have yeah, Don, we have just a couple of minutes left, and I'd just like you to share with us, when you saw the flag raised on Mount Suribachi, what went through your mind? Oh, that was victory. I looked up there and I saw the, and he said, they're tying the flag on the pole now. They're going to raise it pretty quick. And I looked up there and there it went up and he said, there it goes. And I tell you, that was just neat. Guys shouted and fired off their guns and the ships at sea could see it. They fired their big guns off and it was just a, a fantastic thing when that happened. And... It, uh, and it was not right at the first of the war, and most most of the guys were killed within two or three days later. They badly wounded. It was just right three days into the war, four days, and so the biggest fighting is still yet to come. But that took away some of them, some of the victory of the Japanese. 
Well, it was it changed a, the show. Right? right, it was a great morale booster for the Americans, and it uh, demoralized yeah, the Japanese. Right. Don Whipple, we are out of time, but thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. They are inspirational, and I just greatly appreciate you. And thank you for my freedom. Thank you, Don Whipple. Well, thank you, Kim. My friends, I hope that you are enjoying these stories that we are sharing with you regarding. Uh, These great Americans that had put their lives on the line during World War II uh, for us. And so I hope that you are really enjoying this. Uh, So our quote for the end of the show decided to go to Winston Churchill. And he said this. He said, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. And it certainly is something to reflect upon. And uh, indeed, we do stand on the shoulders of giants. So my friends today, be grateful, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. My friends, you are not alone. God bless you, and God bless America. And I don't want no one to cry, but tell them. It's the Kim Munson Show, analyzing the most important story. Socialization of transportation, education, energy, housing, and water. What it means is is that government controls it through rules and regulations. The latest in politics and world affairs. Under this guise of bipartisanship and nonpartisanship, it's actually tapped down the truth. Today's current opinions and ideas. On an equal field in the battle of ideas, mistruths or misconceptions, and it is getting us into a world of hurt. Is it freedom or is it force? Let's have a conversation. Indeed, and welcome to the Kim Munson Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You're each treasured, valued, you have purpose. Today's drive for excellence. Take care of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your body, my friends. We were made for this moment. And thank you to the team I work with. That's producer Steve, Zach, Patty, Keith, Charlie, Jen, Echo, and all the people here at Crawford Broadcasting. I'm truly blessed to work with such great people. Uh, check out our website. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter there. And you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. And thank you to all of you who support us. We are an independent voice. We search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. And uh, we're doing something very special this um, these first three days of the, this week. Uh, Producer Steve is doing something very special with the Polar Express out at the Colorado Railroad Museum. And uh, so he is uh, going to be off for the week of December to make that happen. And Producer Luke, who's stepping in, actually had some vacations scheduled as well. And so we decided to do something very special, and that is um, rebroadcast some of these America's Veteran stories that we have recorded over the years. And I've chosen uh, stories. Uh, actually, I have five uh, different World War II veterans, and then the last uh, the last one will be uh, a conversation with my cousins, who we had a cousin that was killed at Pearl Harbor, and we thought it was very appropriate to play that show on the anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So we worked really hard uh, to make this happen for you, and we hope that you will really enjoy this. This is, this is something a little different for what we're doing, but uh, we hope that it's something that you will really value. 
And uh, uh, in context, the America's Veteran Stories broadcasts 3 to 4 p.m. on Sundays. And then Encore broadcasts are Sundays evenings, 10 to 11 at night, and Saturdays, 10 to 11 at night. And this all began because of a trip that I took in 2016 with a group that accompanied uh, 40-day veterans back to Normandy, France, for the 72nd anniversary of the D-Day landings. And it was at that point I realized each of these stories is unique. They need to be heard. They need to be recorded and broadcast and archived. And so we just thought that this would be something very special to do for you while we were uh, having all these different scheduling uh, things happen here at the studio. And so that is why we have chosen these uh, six different stories to broadcast for you. And so we hope that you thoroughly enjoy them. And welcome to America's Veteran Stories with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website. That is americasveteranstories.com. And I'm thrilled to have on the line with me two of my cousins. And that is Jane Perkins and Linda Crumbaker. And uh, we did a show with them uh, before on April 24th to talk about uh, our parents' cousin, uh, Wilbur Newton, who died at Pearl Harbor in World War II. And his remains were recently identified and they were brought home. And both my cousins were very involved in that. Uh, So Jane and Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. And, and the show comes to you because of a trip that I took in 2016 that accompanied four D-Day veterans to Normandy, France, for the uh, anniversary of the D-Day landings. And uh, I returned home realizing these stories need to be broadcast and recorded and archived, and hence America's Veterans Stories. So, Jane, let's start with you. Um, for those that may have not listened to the prior show, set this up just a little bit on what happened uh, regarding Wilbur Newton. Well, uh, in October of last year, uh, Ed Deeds, your dad, was notified that they uh, had identified his remains. And uh, I first became aware of this in uh, December, around Christmas time, when I got a text from Linda, who's sitting here with me, uh, who had talked to her sister who lives out in western Kansas, uh, where most of the rest of the family is, uh, that they had identified Wilbur's remains. And the hair on the back of my neck stood up, and I got goosebumps and eyes. I was amazed and elated. Um, I had known about Wilbur, uh, not much. We were never talked about him very much. Uh, but I knew the name and uh, wasn't even sure where his parents were buried uh, because his mother was our granddad's sister. Yes, uh, us three. Uh-huh. And uh, mom thought it was maybe Mount Hope or Mount Ridge, Kansas. Well, I retired in 2017, and I thought, well, when I retire, I'll have some time to look into this and drive around, because we're not we're in Wichita. We're not that far away. And I never got to that. And uh, then, of course, COVID hit. And um, anyhow, uh, when Linda uh, uh, texted me that, I called her right away. And then I also got on the phone with my sister in Kansas City, who um there's a lot of stuff on the internet, and she got on Find a Grave right away and uh, found um, uh, the grave and the obituary, and uh, that's when we learned that there was a marker uh, in uh, Missouri, Mount City, Missouri, that had been uh, placed there, uh, probably by his parents, and on it said, and I may not quite get this right, but it had the years he was, he was born, and also 1941, and he gave his life for his country, and he died at Pearl Harbor. So anyhow, uh, back to the other story. So mom had part of it right. Uh, he was buried in Mount Hope Cemetery, not Mount Hope, Kansas. <laughs> and, uh, of course, it wasn't Mount Ridge. It was Mount City, Missouri. So anyhow, that's um, how I became aware of it and how we learned about the market. Because uh, 
Well, early before that, let me back up a little bit. Um, Linda and I, feel free to jump in here, too, and Robin were talking about, you know, when his remains came back, what would be the best thing to do with them? Because the rest of the family is all buried up in, mostly in Bird City, Kansas. His grandparents are buried there. And, and by the way, his grandmother was still alive. Uh, she died in 1945. So Wilbur's grandmother was still alive when he perished uh, at Pearl Harbor. And she's, and of course her husband, he died in 1939. He's buried there too. And then all three of um, Aunt Leona's siblings, my granddad and our two great aunts are buried there as well, and numerous cousins. So anyhow, when we found the marker, it was kind of like an aha moment. I mean, it was like, just, to me, was clear as a bell that, that that's where that's where his remains belonged. Was there in those days. Well, and Linda, let's move over just a little bit of history regarding um, uh, December 7th, 1941. Uh, He was on the, uh, let's see, he was on the Oklahoma, correct? Correct, yes. And uh, it sank very, very quickly, and there were many men that perished uh, there on the Oklahoma. And by the time they got to the remains, uh, they ended up burying a number of them in, um, uh, not mass graves, but several of them in graves uh, because they couldn't tell, uh, you know, couldn't identify the remains. And so give us a little bit of history about the Oklahoma, Linda. As we understand it, um uh, at, at the service that particular day, which we were not aware of this from the readings that we had done, but uh, the, uh, the, the Navy person that came in to our service did a really good job of explaining some of the things that, that had happened with the Oklahoma. As we understand it, they had been out on patrol the day before, and they just happened to be the last ship that came into to port that night. Thus, they were the they were at the end of the row of the four shi- of the six six ships that were in um, um, there at the harbor. Uh, <clears throat> and so, like I said, they had been out on parole that day. It's our understanding from the readings. Uh, of course, this this bombing took place on a Sunday morning, but they the USS Oklahoma was due for inspection on Monday morning, so we can assume. And it said that uh, all of the um, manholes were, were open for inspection uh, to be aired out and to be inspected. So um, that was kind of an unusual thing to uh, to have those exposed like that. And so when that bombing took place, um, then it didn't take long, and the uh, Oklahoma actually capsized uh, because it did take on water because of the, the open portholes or the open manholes. Um, it was within a matter, I think, of 12, 12 minutes. And it had capsized. Yeah, that was very quick. It was so quick that it happened. And I know that, uh, uh, Jane, I think that they tried to get these guys out, but uh, you needed blowtorches to try to, you know, open it up because it had turned over. And, of course, there was all kinds of oil and the water. Uh-huh. So it was a very dangerous thing. I know they tried to save save many of them, but they just couldn't. Right. I did. I, I did read. Started reading a book about a man who was trapped in the Oklahoma at Pearl Harbor, and, and I couldn't read it. Um, 
But the story, he was he was freed after about 24, 26 hours, him and I think 11 other men. But they weren't, and I, I, didn't, I did not read the whole book. I just couldn't when they talked about being trapped down there. But um, I don't know that they were below water level. You know, they might have been above that. So with the, the oily water, with the, you know, all the oil and the gasoline in it, might have not been affected by, um, blown up like the others, would, you know, when they tried to rescue them. But I, I couldn't read it. I just. <laughs> I know. I know because it's too personal. It's too it personal. Uh, and um, so so we have the, the interview that we did. Uh, let's see again. I want to make sure that was April, April 24th and recommend that people go back and listen to that. But let's let's take it now. Uh, and my brother, Rob, was very involved with all of you or both of you. Uh, but you both decided and, and I think it was probably just a journey. It was like one step led to another. And what happened bringing Wilbur home was pretty, pretty amazing. So the two of you get together, and this is at the end of last year. And uh, the decision is made once that marker is found, uh, because the decision could have been made that Wilbur's remains would have stayed at the Punch Bowl, which is the the cemetery over in Hawaii. But after seeing that marker, I'm just thinking of the emotion, Linda, when the family put that marker there, they didn't know where he was. I mean, tremendous amount of emotion, and that's why you brought him home. But can you imagine what they were thinking when they, they put that marker there? Uh, it, it's really hard, uh, <clears throat> um, you know, having <clears throat> having children of your own and, um, and um, trying to make sense of something like that and then also just getting back at, I mean back in those days they just had the telegram <clears throat> and so receiving those telegrams uh, basically in a few lines saying regret and so forth like that uh, <clears throat> of course I, it, it's hard it, it would it, it is really sobering and very very hard to um, place yourself in, in that type of um, of emotion, for sure. Well, and so the decision is made to bring bring him home. And uh, so you, uh, we've got just a couple of minutes right now, Jane, and then we'll come back. But uh, so you and Linda got connected. Um, you found out where his hometown was, and you guys took a road trip, right? Yes, we did. <laughs> and did you have any idea what uh, what was going to happen? You you had determined you you figured out where this marker is, and it was in Mound City, Missouri. And so you take a road trip. I tell you what, let's do. Let's go to break early so that we can hear the whole story on that. I'm talking with my cousins, and that's Jane Perkins and Linda Crumbaker, about this whole adventure of of bringing Wilbur Newton home. Uh, he was killed at Pearl Harbor in 1941, and so we're, we're going to go to break. Before we do that, though, uh, one of the uh, nonprofits that I have adopted is the USMC Memorial Foundation, and uh, they are raising money to remodel the Marine Memorial out at Sixth and Colfax. It was dedicated back in 1977, so it's time for a remodel. And Paula Sarles and her team, and Paula is a Vietnam-era Marine veteran. She's a Gold Star wife. Uh, they are working to raise money uh, for this, and you can actually honor a loved one by buying a brick, and it'll have their name and their branch of service and their time of service. Uh, so it's a great way to honor them, or you can actually just donate. So go to USMCMemorialFoundation.org. That's USMCMemorialFoundation.org. We will be right back with Jane Perkins and Linda Crumbaker. 
The Metro home ownership real estate market is very tight right now. That's why Kim Munson recommends you have seasoned Remax realtor Karen Levine on your side of the table. Karen Levine will help you navigate through the many details of your home buying experience so that you can successfully pursue your American dream. Because Karen Levine cares about property rights for each individual, she volunteers hundreds of hours to represent home ownership opportunities at the local, county, state, and national level. If you are considering buying or selling your home, call Karen Levine today at 303-877-7516. Again, that's 303-877-7516. You'd like to get in touch with one of the sponsors of The Kim Munson Show, but you can't remember their phone contact or website information. Find a full list of advertising partners on Kim's website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. All of Kim's sponsors are an inclusive partnership with Kim and are not affiliated with or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the Kim Munson Show and grow your business, contact Kim at her website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. to America's Veteran Stories with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website. That is americasveteranstories.com. I have on the line with me two of my cousins. That's Jane Perkins and Linda Crumbaker. And Linda, we have a big family. There's 24 grandkids in the family. And uh, so it's a really, I, I loved the holidays. They were just a lot of fun with all, all these kids around. You're right. Yes. Um, how we all fit in one place. Uh, it's just amazing, but <laughs> <laughs> but but we made it happen. And our grandmother had this great recipe for spice cookies that we all loved. I just remember; it seems like I just remember them sitting out, and we'd like run through the house and grab some, and then run back through. And those were just really great memories. But um, Linda and and Jane uh, were very involved with uh, bringing Wilbur Newton's uh, remains back from Hawaii. Wilbur was killed December seventh, nineteen forty one, with the attack on Pearl Harbor. He was on the uh, USS Oklahoma. And before we get to your road trip, uh, Jane, um, I was talking to Lieutenant Colonel Bill Rutledge, uh, 93 years old, who reads all kinds of history. And we were talking about you two being on the show as well as Wilbur. And he shared something with me that I had did not realize. I think it's been troubling to all three of us as we've thought about this. Uh, but that is uh, after the uh, Oklahoma capsized, there was something very tragic that happened, Jane. Yeah, there was. Um, I mean, when the ship capsizes, you know, you can only imagine when you're inside, you don't know what is up and what is down. And um, uh, there were some air pockets in there. Uh, and some men survived in there apparently for some days. But um, they could hear tapping uh, from the inside of that ship for days afterwards. I-, I read somewhere for as long as four days. But they really could get to them safely because of all the oil and, and uh, gasoline and um, you know, the way you cut through a hole, of course, is probably with a blowtorch or some kind of a, 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 a grinder or a, a drill or something. And, and they couldn't use those because of the conditions there. And uh, that was why it was so hard for me to even think about re- reading that book. I, I did skip to the part and read where they got out. I, I found that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it was just they barely made it out alive with, what, with I think, 11 guys or 12 guys that did. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, he survived the Pearl Harbor and has written a book. I think it's called 
No, I don't have the exact name, but it's I Survived Pearl, or I, 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 Trapped in Pearl Harbor. I think it's the name of the book, uh, if anybody wants to try to get hold of it. But, uh, well. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that it, that becomes very personal for all of us as we think about uh, about Wilbur. And um, but let's move over here uh, to the road trip that you you two, Jane Perkins and Linda Crumbaker, decided to do a road trip. Now, was this uh, at the end of the year or, or after the beginning of twenty twenty two? And Linda, I'll go to you with that. It was in March. Yeah, it was in March, late March of this year, 2022. Yeah. We had made arrangements to go down there. We had been in contact uh, with people in Mound City. Uh, and uh, that was thanks to the phone number in the newspaper, actually, because it's so hard to get phone numbers anymore. And uh, had been in touch with people at the Methodist Church uh, with a man who was currently the mayor there. Uh, your brother, Robin, had, had selected uh, Meyerhofer Funeral Home down there by that time. And they were, they were amazing uh, to work with. But anyhow, we had set that date up and uh, uh, made the trip down there and uh, met with the people at the Methodist Church and the representatives from the funeral home there in the community. And uh, in their little parlor, in their little wooden church, which was the same church that Wilbur and uh, the whole family attended uh, when they lived in Mount City. Uh, it's been moderately remodeled, but I would imagine some of those same walls are still there, uh, the structure. Uh, anyhow, we met with them at the church. And that's when we got started talking about what we wanted to have happen when we, as we brought Wilbur's remains back. Uh, and the, home, the town really embraced it, didn't they, Linda? They, they did, Kim. Um, I did not know until <clears throat> I spent a couple of days prior to the service down at, at, or at Mound City and had opportunity to be at the funeral home as people came in to pay their respects. And it was, it was, I would say, just a constant flow of people. Probably over 200 people came in those two days just, just to pay their respects. And um, <clears throat> it was really interesting. I didn't know until that time someone said, you know, they should have had the service in a bigger venue because there's so many people that want to come. And, and I told them, I said, you know, I understand that, but it was so precious to us to find the Methodist church that the Newtons attended, and it was still in the, roughly in the same condition that it was back when they would have attended. Um, so, so I don't know whether we would have been open, open to moving it at all. And as it worked out, it was a beautiful Saturday day that we had his service there. And I suppose there was probably maybe 150, maybe 200 people out, out at the grave site that, that, you know, of course, couldn't fit into the, into the church. Uh, <clears throat> and like Jane said, up and down uh, the route that we took, um, there were people out with their flags saluting um, and and just it was a very touching and honorable and in uniform and yes there were several in uniform um, so it was it was just very moving and very touching 
Well, it uh, it really was, and uh, we'll get to the the service here in, in a moment. But um, let's talk about the plane coming in. Let's talk about uh, Jane. I think you were there. My brother and yes. sister in law were there when uh, the flight arrived. So uh, Wilbur's remains were flown from Honolulu to Dallas, Dallas to Kansas City, Mountain City, Missouri is located about half hour north of St. Joe, Missouri. Uh, it was a rainy day, but tell us about that plane coming in, Jane, and just what that was like that day. Well, Chris, to say it was an amazing day is probably an understatement. Uh, it rained all the way down there from Wichita to Kansas City. It rained the whole time we were there. It rained super hard when we were out on the tarmac, and it rained all the way home. And I thought, you know, being from Western Kansas, rain is a blessing. When that plane came in and landed on the tarmac in Missouri, we got another blessing from heaven. As Wilbur's remains were finally back in in the state where he grew up uh, in in, in Missouri. Um, It taxied in, and as it turned to come into the gate, they had, um, the airport had two water cannons there, one on either side that sprayed over the plane, and you could hardly see the water because of the rain. But it was really so touching. And then um, we were out there on the tarmac, and there was quite a few press people out there as well. They were on the other side, uh, across from us, uh, on the other side of the planes that taxied through us. We were on the west side. They were on the east side. We were kind of on the southwest side. And my daughter-in-law and three of my grandkids were also there with us. And another cousin from Bird City drove down. And they tacked it up to the gate and, and stopped. But before they opened the doors, they opened the door to the hull of the plane. And it took them some time, but they looked at the uh, tramp ramp, uh, whatever you call it, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the, the ramp? Or, the ramp, yeah, to unload the, thank you, to unload the casket. It took them quite a while to get it to the door. But when uh, that casket got to the ramp and started coming down, I was just overwhelmed with tears and I thought, Oh, finally, at last. Wilbur, Wilbur's home, 80 years. And uh, the Navy was allowed on the tarmac, and their young men and their women were waiting there. And uh, when it got to the end of the ramp, of course, they picked it up, saluted before they picked it up, and uh, picked it up, and very respectfully uh, carried it over to the waiting hearse and put it in there. But all of the people, the men that were working at the, at the airport that had helped roll the ramp up and, you know, had the signals out there for the plane, they were all standing one to, to one side, very somberly together, respectfully, and, and saluting. And some of them had their hands under their hearts uh, as Wilbur's remains were passed by, you know, be loaded on, onto the ramp. Um, uh, it was just an, an amazing time to see, uh, you know. And nobody was, uh, they didn't open the doors to let people off the plane till after this occurred. Uh, could you see people uh, looking out the windows and uh, at all? I could not. Okay. Uh, uh, wings were in the way where I was standing. But I, there's a flag. I mean, the flag was there, the American flag, because it was American Airlines. And he flew on. The flag was there, and, and it was very clear uh, there. It, it, would this be a good time to share this this letter? You know what? Let's go to break, and when we come okay. back, let's do that because okay. bringing Wilbur home touched so many lives. It's just remarkable. Yes. I'm talking with my cousins, and that's Jane Perkins and Linda Crumbaker, and uh, we're going to go to break. Three Points Financial is a fiduciary financial planning company focused on helping individuals and families. 
Mary Alpers and Steve Cruz at Three Points Financial specialize in investment strategies, tax planning and preparation, and retirement planning with no product sales or commissions. Tax laws have changed and will continue to change. Inflation is real. Three Points Financial helps you maneuver through these changes to achieve your financial success. For clarity and a solid, relevant financial and investment plan while working with a company that puts your interests at the forefront, schedule a no-obligation initial consultation at threepointsfinancial.com. That's threepointsfinancial.com. What you feed your skin matters. Botanical Rush is clean, professional skincare that only uses pure ingredients to restore and protect the skin. Your skin absorbs the products you put on it, so when you're using something every day, you better know what the ingredients are. Botanical Rush professional formulas are not just pure and potent, they are affordable. With regular use, these beautiful botanical formulas support collagen production, skin's precious moisture barrier, and reduce hyperpigmentation. Myra Mesco, the founder of Botanical Rush, holds every ingredient accountable to meet or exceed her high standards. Botanical Rush is non-toxic skincare, free of chemicals, estrogen mimickers, or artificial fragrances that hinder the skin's radiance. Discuss your skincare needs with Myra and set up a consultation at klzradio.com beauty or email info at botanicalrush.com and use the exclusive Kim Monson discount code KIM15 for your first order for a 15% discount at checkout. That's botanicalrush.com code KIM15. No matter how you define it, inflation is out of control. Increasing prices at the gas pump and grocery stores are hurting everyday people. All these challenges we face are preventable. Individuals must understand what is going on and who is responsible. That is why Kim Munson is bringing truth and clarity to the issues facing our families, our communities, our state, and our country. Now more than ever, it's important to support Kim's independent voice. She has the courage to research and inform you about the real issues. It's not easy, and Kim could use your help. Go to KimMunson.com to contribute. Again, help Kim by contributing at KimMunson.com. That's M-O-N-S-O-N.com. God bless America. Welcome back to America's Veteran Stories with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website. That is americasveteranstories.com. And we're telling an amazing story today. I have two of my cousins on the line with me, Jane Perkins and Linda Crumbaker. Uh, they were very involved in bringing uh, our parents' cousin home from Hawaii. He'd been there. He died December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. And his remains were recently identified and brought him home. And they, both Linda and Jane were very involved in this and and so Jane I'm going to go to you on Wilbur has touched each of our lives uh, but he not just our lives so many people and you've got a, a story regarding the pilot uh, please share that okay well this is a letter that was sent to actually Meyer Hopper New funeral home and um, they forwarded it to us and this letter is not signed uh, I don't have a name or a return address but um, anyhow it's addressed to the family of Wilbur Francis Newton and it starts out we don't know each other, but I wanted to write you to tell you how your loved one has touched our lives. My husband is a pilot for American Airlines and was notified yesterday that he has the honor of flying the remains of Mr. Newton from Hawaii to the mainland tomorrow. 
My husband's uncle was killed during World War II while serving in the Navy outside Okinawa. My husband is humbled and honored to be part of bringing this long overdue homecoming about. We are so sorry for your family's loss, but pray that this, uh, that this return brings comfort and closure and pride for his service and sacrifice on behalf of our beautiful nation. Humbly, and then, then he shall be. Well, pretty amazing. And yes, he touched so many lives. So, Linda, let's go to the the service. First of all, it was remarkable between all of our cousins. I bet there were 50 or 60 people, just a family that were there. Would you do you think that's accurate or close? I think you're very, very close. I think that that is is, uh, definitely, and and not only our cousins, but the next generation. It was good to see, um, you know, uh, uh, sons and daughters because of our cousins being there and and the impact that it had upon even the next generation. It was kind of comforting (laughs) to to see them step up and and help... um, as pallbearers. <laughs> we had a few. <laughs> that, that was, we had, there were more pallbearers than, it, it, it was, uh, it was re- refreshing. That's, that's a good problem to have. So, so that day, um, Mount City, Missouri, uh, everybody met at the funeral home and uh, Wilbur's coffin was there with the American flag over that. And then it was put in the hearse. And uh, I was further back in the line of cars that went to the funeral. Actually, we need to talk about the service though and uh, jane why don't you take that because uh it was it was just a beautiful service and there was actually the navy sent an admiral to speak it was just remarkable yeah it really was how it all came together um um my nephew actually who um my mother carol brubaker his grandmother carol brubaker carol deeds brubaker was the first cousin of wilbur's um and she's deceased in 2005 but anyhow my nephew uh who is a lay pastor for the methodist church actually uh hosted the service uh the regular pastor at mound city had already had something scheduled several months in advance and, and was out of town that day so anyhow he uh he opened the service and uh I have it in front of me um, he, he did a beautiful job a beautiful oh. job yeah, and he he took a few years out of college, I and mean, he's a young man. But we were welcomed by the the, the mayor, the former mayor, Joe Lutzenkamper, who was mayor when, when we uh, first got in touch with Man City. And he is also president of the Qantas Club. And Linda and I went to a Qantas meeting that day. We were down there, too. And uh, anyhow, uh, welcomed us uh, to Man City. And then Angie uh, Kylum, who has an amazing voice, saying, God bless America, a cappella. Yeah, it was amazing. amazing. And then I gave a response, um, thanking all the gracious people in Mound City for everything that they had done and how a little bit of the story, how this all came together and why it was falling on us as second cousins to come in this service because the Newtons were all deceased. There were no grandchildren in that family. And, uh, of course, your dad is not in well health and neither is his sister, who was also a cousin of elders, um, but she was able to be there. But anyhow, we we got the honor of, uh, of planning most of the service. And uh, then, Kim, we asked you, and you did a wonderful job of reading the obituary uh, for Wilbur, which was kind of uh, odd because you usually don't do that 80 years after someone 
mm-hmm. passes away. So it was a, not the typical obituary because it did include a lot of history about the Oklahoma and about, you know, what had happened to the family as well. Uh, Linda's daughter-in-law, Sierra Crumbaker, who is actually from Oregon, Missouri, which is not very far from Man City, uh, read the 23rd Psalm. And uh, we got a lot of comfort from that. And then uh, Jacob brought us a message uh, about a man who, who no one in attendance ever knew. I mean, I've been, those of us alive never never knew Wilbur. And talked about, you know, uh, what his life must have been like. That uh, he volunteered for the Navy. He wasn't drafted. Uh, he had volunteered to serve our country. And, and some other comforting words, too. Um, also, one of the... Uh, Senator or the representatives from uh, Missouri, the area representative there, Alan, I can't remember his last name right off again, and I know that too, um, forgive me, uh, was there, and uh, he presented us with another plaque uh, commemorating Wilbur's service. Uh, we've got it right here. Okay, hang on. No, if I think of it, I'll come back to that later. But any, uh, uh, and he uh, uh, presented a plaque as well. Okay, yeah. Oh, Alan Andrews. Okay. Andrews was the name I was having. He's the first district representative in Missouri, in the Missouri uh, House of Representatives. He had a very nice talk, uh, too, about um, Wilbur's service and, uh, and honoring Wilbur. And then after um, after we finished with the message, uh, Andy, uh, we had uh, all the uh, veterans stand up and be recognized. And honored there, and, and there were men that showed up there in their uniforms, to their military uniforms. It was amazing. And some of them were there as well. And uh, then uh, Angie Collins sang the Navy hymn a cappella. And there's four verses to that, uh, talking about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then the last verse addresses the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was beautiful. And then that was followed by the benediction, and then we were dismissed from there. Uh, well, one thing, Jane, the Admiral did speak as well. Did you say oh, that? Uh, yeah, I did. I did. I did not mention that. Uh, yeah, he was the first Admiral, and uh, he spoke as well. And he's the one that really told the history about the Oklahoma. About well, let's see. She was built. I think he said the year Wilbur was born, which would have been 1912. And in 26, they fitted the Oklahoma with what they called um, blisters or protection on the outside of the hall. They must have welded that on. Torpedo blisters, yeah. And it was designed to protect the Oklahoma from a torpedo attack, you know, so that it wouldn't penetrate the hall. So the man, what he told about uh, was how everybody was caught off guard, you know, and they had the manholes open to these blisters so that they could peek down in there and make sure there wasn't any rust or any holes down in there. Um, uh, and they were designed to be watertight, but, you know, those things happen underwater. And anyhow, they had those things open, but anyhow, when the first uh, attack came, and it was somewhere probably around 7.55 in the morning, uh, the source was buried. The first torpedo hit by the first turret, which is where the guns are. Uh, shortly within probably a minute after that, a second torpedo hit. Uh, by another turret, and then right away a third one hit between the two of them. Well, the first two torpedoes essentially tore those tor- those torpedo blisters off, but they held. But the third torpedo punctured the hull, and that was when the ship started to fill with water, started to lift. And then they were they really don't know for sure how many other torpedoes hit because the the, the Oklahoma was so badly damaged. They think possibly up to five to eight more torpedoes hit that that that, that battleship. 
And of course, she started turn over right away, you know, and lifted and, and turned over. And the mast got caught in the in the in the bottom of the harbor there, so she didn't completely go over, but she did capsize in a matter of minutes. And that's how so many men were probably over 400 men were trapped below, um, you know, in the hulls and uh, of that ship. So she was a mighty battleship, uh, but anyhow, uh, she she she. Um, couldn't stand for that, you know, that many torpedoes to hit her. So anyhow, that's the story he told, and, and I hadn't heard all of that. That was very, very interesting. He came all the way up to Washington, D.C. for this. It, it, and that it, it was really a, a, a beautiful thing. And of course, um, uh, there were also the, uh, pallbearers uh, from the Navy. But uh, Linda, the, as uh, Jane mentioned, that the benediction was given, and then the pallbearers. It was it was precious seeing all all these family members, little ones, you know, trying to be close to that. I just thought it was very precious, Linda. Exactly, very moving. Uh, quite quite an honor to be a part of that whole procession. So uh, then you had all arranged for Wilbur's casket to go from the church to the cemetery on a wagon. And when I showed the picture to my producer, Steve, he said, is that a hay wagon? And I said, well, I, I think it is. But it was so beautiful and so appropriate, Linda. Exactly. It was it was just perfect. It was just perfect. Jim, how that came about was when we were having our discussion on our road trip with the Methodist people, uh, we had we had discovered that that the Missouri what their animal is the mule. <laughs> we remarked, now wouldn't it be fun to have like the 20, 20, 20 mule team pull a wagon type thing? And the people from the church immediately jumped on that and that said, oh, we know Stan, he will want to do this. He's got a team of horses. He's got the wagon. I mean, that was just almost immediately that that was planned. Um, so, so, and, and as I understand it, Stan has a very, very good voice. He is the father of our soloist, Angie. And usually they sing a duet. <laughs> he, he definitely wanted to have his horse and wagon there to do um to do that to do the uh the yes honors yes to do the honors that way and it worked out beautifully he had he had a team of horses that once they started they kept a a really just not a gallop or anything like that but they kept a real consistent trot out to the graves gravesite and it was a marvelous um, yes, it went very, very well. Okay. I want to just tell a funny story if I've got time for it. Uh, I heard him talking with one of the people from the funeral home, one of the Meyerhoffers, uh, as they were putting that that uh, uh, casket on the wagon. He was Mr. Meyerhoffer said, "I hope this stays on her." He said, "I've never lost, I've never lost a, a casket before in my life." And Stan replied, "Neither have I." <laughs> um, it was truly, it was truly so special. We're going to go to break. I'm talking with my cousins, Jane Perkins and Linda Crumbaker. Before we do that, though, Hooters Restaurants is one of my sponsors of both the shows. They have five locations, Loveland, Aurora, Lone Tree, Colorado Springs, and Westminster. And uh, the story of how they became business partners of mine is really a story about uh, freedom and free markets and capitalism. And so we've got that over on my website at KimMunson.com if you're curious about that. Um, but again, thank you to Hooters for making sure that they bring these stories alive as well. We're going to go to break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with my cousins, Jane Perkins and Linda Crumbaker. 
Inflation is rocking our boats, especially for individuals on fixed incomes. If you are 62 years or older, mortgage specialist with Polygon Financial Group, Lauren Levy, can help you navigate this inflation squeeze with a reverse mortgage. Additionally, if you are considering buying a new home, refinancing your existing home, or consolidating high interest debt, it's not too late to lock in an interest rate before interest rates increase again. Don't wait. Kim Munson recommends you call Lauren Levy today at 303-880-8881 for a no-cost consultation. That's Lauren Levy at 303-880-8881. Every family needs a healthcare team that has your child's best interest as the priority, and Roots Medical is proud to offer exactly that. At Roots Medical, we strive to empower and educate both parent and child about the importance of gut health, how to implement healthy changes in the home, and of course, all of the benefits that come with a fully optimized immune system. Same day and sickness appointments are available and easy to schedule. For more information, visit rootsmedical.net. That's R O O T S medical.net. Roots Medical, getting to the root of your healthcare concerns. The ability to protect and defend yourself is your right. Having the knowledge and skills to protect yourself the correct and safe way is essential. At Franktown Firearms, they will equip you with both the tools and the skills. The team at Franktown wants you to learn how to build your confidence and improve your skills with the help of their trained experts. They will take the time to make sure you choose the right gun for you and teach you the necessary skills to carry it safely and securely. This holiday season, consider giving your loved one a firearm training course at Franktown Firearms. They offer one-on-one training or group classes, depending on your comfort level and skill. You will find they are fully stocked with guns and ammunition at or below MSRP. You can be assured that you are providing a gift that will truly keep on giving and let your loved ones exercise their freedoms and rights safely and confidently. Visit klzradio.com slash franktown today to give the gift of freedom. That's klzradio.com slash franktown. Franktown Firearms, where friends are made. From the mountains to the prairies to the And welcome back to America's Veteran Stories with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website. That is americasveteranstories.com. And we're telling the story of bringing Wilbur Newton home. And my cousins, we're, we're from a big family, but my two of my cousins, Jane Perkins and Linda Crumbaker, were instrumental in it, as well as my brother, Rob Deeds. Uh, but he was unavailable today. Um, so Jane and Linda, uh, and Linda, I guess I'll go to you on this. Is uh, We're leaving the church. It was a beautiful Saturday. It was right, uh, right before Memorial Day. Uh, the casket is put on this uh, hay wagon, and I was near the back of the procession. I have this picture of all these cars going down the street, and uh, the wagon is just curving, and all these people lining the road uh, to pay their respects. It was remarkable, Linda. It really was. It was very, yes, it was very, very remarkable. I must say that the Patriot Guard is is what led the procession with the motorcycles and so forth like that. When when we were leaving the church, one of the uh, their their head guy uh, after the casket was uh, was put on the hay wagon and so forth like that, and we were ready to start the procession. He his detail. He turned to them and he said. Boys, let's take this soldier home. (laughs) They all got on their motorcycles and led the procession. And then, of course, the hearse or the the uh, the the wagon was behind that. 
And as I understand it, Stan, that the the gentleman that had his horses, he said, you know, once I get started, don't you guys slow down a bit. My horses are going to want to, they, they've got a pace and we've got to keep it. And I've got, I've got to keep that pace so I can make it up and down these hills. <laughs> There's a reason why it's called Mountain City. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and we all grew up in western Kansas where there were hardly any hills. So that, uh, uh, so we go out to the cemetery and uh, amazing how many people were there, Jane. And then there was also uh, a 21-gun salute, correct? Yes, there was. There was a 21-gun salute, and uh, it was all the area men from the DFW. They were there in their navy blue pants and their white shirts with their hats on. Um, so many of them. Uh, and uh, paying their respects to them. They, they all stood in the line uh, kind of to one side of the whole service. Uh, and they did the 21-gun salute. Uh, and it was both men and women, I noticed, that, that did that. Yeah. So we get out to the gravesite, and uh, you and and my mother's my father was not able to attend, but being the wife of the oldest living relative, uh, the flag was presented to her. But you, so I I was far away, so I didn't really get to hear everything that was going on. What was it like to be sitting there, uh, there at the gravesite, Jane, as uh, all this was occurring? Well, again, it was very humbling, very overwhelming. Um, you know, and, and and the Navy, everything was so precise and so respectful and and so orderly, uh, too. Uh, Linda was sitting right next to your mom as they presented the flag. Uh, I was down a few feet from there. I'm, I'm not sure what was said, but your mother stood up, and your mother's very pretty. By the way. <laughs> she stood up and uh, very graciously received the flag, and heard what he had to say. I'm going to pass my phone to Linda to see if she has anything to add on that. Uh, <clears throat> yes, it was it was just quite touching. Um, your mother received it, and then, as I understand, there was a small medallion that he also uh, gave your mother, and she she wanted to go ahead and give that to the to, <clears throat> to the Mound City Historical Society, but but the instruction to her was, no, you keep that, ma'am, for for your personal treasure. So I, I'm sure that that's going to be something that she will really really treasure. And then the the Patriot Guard also stepped forward and gave a plaque to uh, a wooden plaque that had uh, kind of a commemoration of the day on it, engraved in it, and and she graciously received that also. Um, And I must say, Kim, I I, I think that we early on uh, kind of decided with your brother, uh, Robin, that that everything that that belonged to, to Wilbur and to the Newton family would remain in Mound City, Missouri, because that was their home. We were their family. Right. <laughs> we were, were half of their family, or most of their family, but but Mound City was their home, and so. Um, so the flag, their, the flag, remained there as well. The the uh, I think it was a challenge coin that she probably received, and that is a personal thing. But everything else is going to the historical society there in Mound City, which is I think so appropriate, Linda. 
Correct. They they have a, a person that is in charge of their military uh, history there. So she has she has been very very gracious in and and finding the right cases to put the folded flag in to put the medals that we will be receiving <clears throat> that Wilbur earned and those will go into that that same case she found a case that that both of those items both not only the flag but the medals will also be displayed in that same case in their historical society uh, we did go ahead and share with them <clears throat> pictures of our family that we that we rounded up, pictures of Wilbur and his family, uh, our kind of our history. And I don't know, Kim, you're kind of thinking, you know, one of these days, if for some reason a Newton family member would come through Mound City and kind of want to look up uh, the Newton family, that they would they would find oh. uh, find Wilbur. And they would find the rest of the family out at the cemetery. Uh, both Bertha and Edith, the sisters, are buried out there. And, of course, both of his parents are also out there. I just I just got chills on that. And the other thing is the shell casings from the 21-gun salute. They put those inside the flag. And so all that's together. Correct, Jane? Yes. That, that's correct, and I, I, I let the Historical Society know about that, and I said, I don't know what military protocol or etiquette is, and I don't know whether you're supposed to display those, you know, those casings or not, but I just wanted you to know that those casings are inside the flag, <laughs> so I don't know how I left it in their hands. Okay. And one other thing that was so interesting is, is as they were folding the flag, it looked to me they kept pulling it. You know, it, it's, as you said, so precise. And they were having, they had a little challenge with that, Linda, correct? They did. And the reason is, is because the flag had 48 stars and not 50. That and. I- I, I think it did. I, I, I'm trying to look at pictures to see whether whether the whether the stars are offset or not, and I can't really tell Kim at 100. percent But they said that they did have, for some reason, had a lot of trouble folding that flag, and so I I, I can't, you know, I'm not real sure whether it's a 40 uh, a 48 star flag, but his original flag that we had on display is a 48. Okay. I, I had time to study it. Okay. And it has more blue field in it, and the stars, they're not offset at all. Right. But I can't really confirm. Somebody, somebody told me that, so that, that might be hearsay. Yes. So we have just a few minutes left. Jane, I want to go to you. Um, both uh, your fathers were World War II veterans. They both served in the European theater. And uh, just want to say thank you to um, your father. And he uh, is married to my dad's sister, uh, and they were all Wilbur's cousins. Uh, what would you like to say about your father? My father, of course, really didn't talk very much about World War II. Um, uh, we didn't hear very many stories. Um, I did know he enlisted in Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, he was a student out there at CSU uh, when he enlisted, and they let him finish the semester of college he was in. And let's see, he would have been a freshman or sophomore then, forty one. Uh, so anyhow, uh, and then he went in, and he was in the artillery. Um, um, and uh, he and Wayne, uh, who is my mother's brother, my dad, mom and dad were even, even dating during the war. Uh, they got married, uh, started dating, married after the war. But anyhow, 
uh, dad uh, and his brother Richard, they were both in the service, and uh, they ran around with the deep boys a lot in Bird City. And Wayne somehow got hold of a, a vehicle, and he and dad uh, made a connection. Uh, Linda probably knows more about that than I do, uh, you know. And then I think I was told the story about the orange marmalade and the other broadcast. So if anybody's curious, we're going to have to go over to see it later. And that's the April 24th. So, Linda, uh, Jane just referred to Wayne, and that is your father. And uh, he was in the Signal Corps, correct? Um, he was in the radio. He was a radio operator right. on the radio. Uh-huh, okay. correct. Yeah. And, and as, go ahead. Yes. As far as, again, he's quite a bit like Jane's father. He didn't really talk much about the war at all. Uh, <clears throat> after he passed away... Mother came down to Kansas City where we were living, and she said some of her letters from Dad were from the YMCA there in Kansas City. So we went to find the YMCA, same exact same building, went upstairs, probably where the library was, because the YMCA had stationery there that Dad wrote on from the YMCA library in Kansas City, some of his letters to to Mom uh, when he was going through uh, radio training there. Then, as I understand it, he went up to Minneapolis or someplace close up to there for his final training. As I understand it, he started down in Italy and came up to France. And as I, um, I'm thinking that he was in Paris when he uh, he somehow had access, uh, you know, was far enough, I guess, far enough up the ladder that he had access to a jeep and decided Bob, uh, uh, Jane's father was close. He was going to go find Bob Brubaker and bring him back, bring him back to Paris, and had had a, had a day on the town anyway. So um, <laughs> it's a, it's a it's a great story. And then we also want to acknowledge our other uncle, Uncle Harold, and he was the brother of of your mother, Jane, and uh, obviously um, your father's brother, uh, Linda. But uh, he was a bombardier, uh, and I think he I think my dad said thirty three missions uh, over in Europe, and uh, pretty amazing. He he I think he left at the age of eighteen, was back by the age of twenty two, farming in western Kansas, and so want to honor him as well. Uh, my dear cousins, we are out of time. Uh, just very quickly, Jane, your final thought, and then Linda, your final thought. Well, this has truly been an amazing story, but Wilbur is the hero. Uh, he's the one that gave his life for our country. Uh, most definitely. Jane Jane Perkins, thank you so much. And Linda Crumbaker, your final thought. Yes, and, and I just want to salute all military that, that are willing to um, give, to, give of their time and, and their lives for our country. I just salute them. <laughs> Well, I so appreciate the two of you and also my brother, Rob, for what you did to bring Wilbur home. Thank you so much. My friends, I hope that you are enjoying these stories that we are sharing with you regarding uh, these great Americans that had put their lives on the line during World War II. Uh, for us. And so I hope that you are really enjoying this. Uh, So our quote for the end of the show decided to go to Winston Churchill. And he said this, he said, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. 
and it certainly is something to reflect upon. And uh, indeed, we do stand on the shoulders of giants. So my friends today, be grateful, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. My friends, you are not alone. God bless you, and God bless America. And I don't want no one to cry.